0: Hi, this is
1: Ted. And this is Arlene, guest host of the Agency Nation podcast. This episode is all about managing crisis. Learn how this company, one of the first in the U.S. to navigate through the COVID virus, went through it just about seamlessly. Today, we are interviewing Matt Bruno.
0: Today's guest is Matt Bruno. Matt is the chief operating officer and founder of Resource Pro. After spending a year teaching English in China, he returned to his entrepreneurial spirits to start Resource Pro in Qingdao, China. Along with an amazing cross-cultural team of business professionals, Matt built the operation from one employee in 2003 to a global enterprise with operations in five cities and three countries to over 5,000. Damn, you're good. Matt's founding of the company was covered in an extensive case study featured in the Harvard Business Review of All Places. Today, Matt is a recognized leader in global and U.S. insurance operations and the Chinese business environment. Matt is passionate about keeping resource pros entrepreneurial culture by empowering and encouraging employees at all levels of the organization to innovate, try new things, and challenge the status quo. I can't wait to hit this interview. Matt, welcome. Hi, good to be here. (laughs)
1: we are excited to get to know a little bit more about you, Matt, and we're going to go right into it.
0: Take us through your life's journey, man. What was Matt's life like? Don't hold
2: back. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, I guess for the early part, it was pretty normal. I grew up in Long Island and, um, you know, went to school at Cornell for business studies and then started my career at Distinguished Programs, which was an insurance uh, program manager right here in New York City. Well, wait, before that, in high school, since we're from
0: that
1: area, what high school did you go to? Half Hollow Hills West. Okay. Must be on Long Island. We're Brooklyn folks, so we don't know. (laughs) Ted went to, uh, where'd you go, Alexander Hamilton?
2: Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. Alexander Hamilton's one of my favorite historical figures. Oh. I went to actually two schools,
0: Chelsea in Manhattan and Alexander Hamilton in Brooklyn. Because I wasn't sure what the heck I wanted to study.
1: And I went to Brooklyn Tech, which had like five thousand students.
0: That's how many people (laughs) Matt has in his business. Look at this.
1: That's right. (laughs) Yeah. So I could have been like, you know, roaming the halls of your business like a high school student. So Matt, I'm
0: (laughs) I'm Matt. I'm in high school. I'm thinking I am going to study what and do what in
2: the future. I guess from pretty early on I was interested in, in business. I worked since I was 11 years old, doing different jobs, delivery boy, beach cleanup, uh, bus boy, waiter, sailing instructor, Mm -hmm. and just took a real interest in business and was pretty sure that's what I wanted my major to be when I went to college.
1: How did you end up at the company that you ended up in, the insurance industry?
2: I think once I graduated, I started looking for jobs uh, on Monster. dot com, I think it was at the time, gotcha. and I ran across this uh, entrepreneurial company in New York City called Distinguished Programs. Jeremy Hitzig was the hiring manager and uh, came in to interview with him. And they were doing some really cool stuff in insurance, which uh, you know, for people who are not insurance, might be hard to believe. <laughs> and and they had they had a great culture. So even though I had sort of no experience with insurance and didn't really know what it was about, you know, I took a chance. Okay. Oh. And how long were you there? I was there for about two and a half years. Okay. okay. What led you astray? What led you away from them? Well, you know, on the one hand, look, it was a very cool experience. I got to work in program development, which was basically like building mini businesses. Distinguished had a few hundred broker relationships and my department's responsibility was to go and see if we could find books of business that we could build a program around and uh, collect the data, put it into a marketing plan, and then take it to insurance carriers to see if they wanted to take risk in it. And then if they did, we would package it into a program for that uh, broker and others, and then basically launch a new product. Uh, So I got to learn kind of all aspects of what goes into an insurance product from the very beginning and how it ends up kind of being launched and run. Nice. Uh, so that was a really good experience. Nice. So then after the two years and a half, what? Yeah. So, you know, it was interesting when I interviewed with Andy Potash, who was the CEO of Distinguished at the time. And he'd asked me this question. He said, what are the five things you want to get from this job? Or what are the five things you want to get from a job? And I forget all of them, but it was you know culture, you know great place to work, interesting assignments, and international exposure. Mm. And he said, Matt, I can give you four of those, mm. uh, but uh, you know we really don't have much on the international side. And I had a friend that was teaching English in China, and he was emailing me all of these fabulous stories about his experience.
1: And uh, I think
2: the 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 itch just uh, became too strong, and so. I asked his advice. Uh, I said, I want to do that. Can you help me get a job? And he pointed me in the right direction. I had said, hey, should I go to Beijing or, or Seoul or Hong Kong? And he said, nah, you don't want to go to any of those really big cities. There's this really cool city called Qingdao that's got great beaches. They're famous for their beer. It's a, you know, a second tier city, but it's really developing. And that's where I ended up.
1: Huh, Matt tell me this, prior to moving to China, had you done a lot of travel, you know, coming from Long Island? Were you traveling with your family?
2: Yeah, my family was pretty into traveling. So we had done mostly in the Caribbean or or around the U.S., a little bit of skiing in Europe when I was growing up. But the biggest exposure I probably got was in college. I did a semester abroad in England, and that's where I met Manj, who was is the friend I was just telling you about? He he ended mm-hmm. up going and teaching in China afterwards. Okay. So I met him and a great group of friends there as well, and got to spend some time backpacking around uh, Europe uh, while I was there. Okay. Very
1: nice. So. So
2: let's go to the next piece of the puzzle. What inspired you to start Resource Pro?
1: So after I spent
2: about a year teaching English in China, I came back to the U.S. and and I. I wanted to go back to China. I I enjoyed the experience I had there. And so I was looking for something to do. But in the meantime, Distinguished had asked me to come back and help with a program that was going through a transition. They had this small premium, high volume community association program with Mm -hmm. tens of thousands of policies that their market had just went bankrupt. And they had to make a very quick transition to a new market. And so I came in to consult at first, and what we realized was we had these really experienced underwriters uh, working on on this program, and the workload and paperwork to help make this transition was creating uh, backlogs, stress, overtime, and they weren't able to focus on growing the program or uh, building relationships uh, with their clients. So we kind of. Almost started off as a joke that, hey, maybe, you know, I, I taught English in Qingdao. There's really bright folks there, college educated. It's mm-hmm. a great environment. I bet we could get folks there to help out. And mm-hmm. as I mentioned, Distinguished was a very entrepreneurial culture. So they said, hey, let's give it a shot. Huh.
1: So all of a sudden, they became international. They started where they had told you in the interview, well, we can't give you that fifth thing, uh, the international piece. Now they were full head in.
2: Andy finally was able to get me the fifth thing. That's right.
1: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. So that's amazing. So you went back to where you had spent a year. Let's talk about today. You know, you guys are headquartered in New York. You guys now have global service centers of 5,000-plus employees um, that are addressing the operational needs around the clock for hundreds of insurance organizations. You have multiple offices in China and India. So I want you to take us back to early 2020 when you began to hear about the coronavirus. What were your initial thoughts and your team's thoughts?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, just to give you some background, We've been working on business continuity planning probably for over 10 years. We've got this great group of folks that have been working on contingency plans, scenarios, uh, including for a pandemic. Mm. And we knew that our work was really critical to our clients' business, and so we wanted to make sure not only could we make them them comfortable, but we could make ourselves comfortable that we were able to react situations. And even if they weren't the scenarios we had laid out, the practice, the uh, we had a crisis management team with pretty clear roles and responsibilities. Uh, every once in a while, we would actually run sort of practice scenarios. So, so people would get used to what we would have to do it if something happened. Mm. So when our offices were hit very early on before most folks in the U.S. even knew what was going on, Uh, our folks in China started to see this story developing. And our team there is great. They activated our business continuity plan uh, very early on. They initiated a crisis management team. And so we had sort of a, a, a whole process around that started to create a series of meetings to track what was going on. And so that's, I think, number one, what helped us get out ahead of that very early on.
1: Matt, can you share with us, do you remember like what month that was? Because like, I know in the U.S., it was like March of 2020. Everyone remembers March of 2020. That's when, you know, we were like, what the heck? We're getting locked down. What's work from home? What's, you know, shelter in place? So around what month was that?
2: I remember it was January. I remember it very clearly because I was actually skiing with my cousin in Colorado and we were Mm -hmm. driving back from the mountains to his house. And I was on my first BCP, business continuity phone call, where the China team was telling us about this new virus that was taking place in Wuhan at the time. And they said, look, we don't know what's going to happen. It's still early days, but we think we should start to prepare. Wow. In
1: January. So they had a head start. They sure did. And I mean, obviously not for their China group, but for their U.S. operation and your other groups. You know, it's when we were still so naive at the time. Right. So
0: your business continuity plan, you activated it in China. So how difficult was it to then activate it in the U.S.? Were your teams then prepared, figuring, hey, this is going to come to the United States. we got to do
2: something. Yeah. By the time it came to the U.S., we had, I thought, been through the hardest thing. And what we were really focused on from the beginning is first and foremost, safety and health of our employees. That was our highest priority from the very beginning. And then second was, you know, how do we continue to run our business? How do we minimize disruption to our clients? How do we communicate with them, let them know what's going on? Uh And then a distant third was of no concern. And we made this very clear to employees very early on. Cost, expenses, those are not an issue right now. If you need to get something done to help an employee get back to town, to get equipment out to them, to order PPE equipment, uh, masks, whatever needed to be done, that was automatic. It was look, health and safety, and then your client disruptions. So we were able to do that. Again, an outstanding team in China, logistics, 5,000 folks, all in different cities at that point because it was over Chinese New Year's, so... We were Mm -hmm. figuring out where they were, trying to get them back, trying to get them computers. And at the same time, we were trying to be really, really clear with our clients. So we were communicating to them all along the way. Our business development department went from a focus on, you know, typically they're focused on sales and opportunities. And Mm -hmm. for about a month, they shifted completely to really crisis management and making sure that our clients knew what was going on, what we were doing, and what they could expect. And so within a couple of weeks, when China really began to shut down and and people couldn't come into the office, we were able to get most people up and running in a work-from-home environment and had very little disruption in productivity by that time. And and we were able to get the clients on board. You know, Another thing that we really talk a lot about and take very seriously is security. And so clients wanted to understand, right, what's gonna no one was working from home yet in the US.
1: Right, right. It wasn't w- it wasn't a common thing. Yeah, yeah, and the other thing is that at that point, you know, the US is like, it's a China problem. It's not affecting us, right? Yep. So
0: Yeah. Well, the next question is was getting PPEs a challenge? Because in the very beginning, I know it was a challenge here in the US. So Tell me about that. Since you guys were the front runners on this, you actually were getting hit the most. You, yeah. know, you had to deal with some issues that we learned about later.
2: It was a challenge first for our, our our China staff. And so in the beginning, when it was still you know not a big issue in India and the U.S., and they were struggling to get PPE and masks, we actually sourced from the U.S. and India and sent to our staff in China, so that they they had enough to make sure that they could give it to employees and that everyone was safe. As the pandemic uh, progressed, and China, after a month or two, they you know they sort of leveled out and got control of it and got the supplies in place. Uh, but as you guys remember, in 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 the U.S. and in India as well, there was a real shortage, and we turned to them and we said, uh, you know, can you help? And they had gotten so good at sourcing PPE for our staff in China mm-hmm. that they had all of these channels available. And they started to ship uh, masks to our employees, to some of our clients who had requested it. Wow! And it was, it was such an amazing operation. And at that time, if you guys remember, we had the hospitals were running short, nursing Ooh. homes were running short. And so we went to our board and we said, look, we think we can help. We wanna buy masks and other PPE and, and donate it to hospitals in the communities where we, we have employees and they were super supportive of it. We reached out to the team and they started this like amazing sourcing operation. And we ended up donating to uh, you know 20 or 30 hospitals and nursing homes, just tens of thousands of, of masks and, wow. and getting them shipped, you know, within weeks. And that was just one of the coolest and yeah. most rewarding things of being able to do something. I think we were all wanting to do something at that time. And to know mm-hmm. that we were able yeah. to have an impact was, um, was really special.
0: Absolutely. Let's wow. go to the next hurdle, which I know we had in our office and a lot of people had. I imagine that not everyone had computers. And you're talking
1: about 5,000 employees. Yeah, how (laughs) difficult
0: was it to be able to secure so many computers?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. We had some preparation because we did start early. And so we we had started to reach out to contractors and and distributors to uh, get extra computers. But for a while, we were cobbling things together. We found out that you could hook up iPads and TVs to uh, to computers and extend your monitors. And so yeah. we had employees who would, you know, basically on like the top of a washing machine, right? They'd put up their uh, their TV and their computer and they'd hook them together and they'd do a YouTube video and we'd share it on the company blog so other employees <laughs> could cobble a system together. We had employees wow. that were going over to their aunt's house and borrowing their computer and bringing it home. So, you know, and then as time went on, we were able to get fresh equipment out and give them a, a little bit more stable environment.
1: Human beings are resourceful, right? Yeah. That's the beauty of it, you know, that we figure it out. When you organize you know?
0: properly. Yeah. Yes.
1: <laughs> so Matt, share with me what some of the lessons that you guys learned from COVID-19.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. As I mentioned, We had this business continuity plan for years, and we've never had to seriously implement it until now. And and the importance of having that and keeping that fresh, making sure that people know what their roles and responsibilities were was important. I think a lot of it, though, comes down to the culture of the organization and the management team and the trust that we have with our managers and employees that we all work. Just trying to solve problems, and the commitment I think that we made to employee health and safety meant a lot to employees. They were willing to go above and beyond for our clients because mm-hmm. we were willing to go above and beyond for them. Mm. And you've experienced that, you know. And then, and then the the communication piece, both internally, uh, we were meeting, you know, day and night with this crisis management team going over issues, and then the external communication with clients and making sure we, we were probably over-communicating, I think. Oh, oh, wow. Uh, but I think that was really important. I think there was a point in time where we had clients, we had a daily report we were sending to each client, and we had clients say, I, I think you can send this once a week, guys.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs>
2: <No>. <laughs> but I think that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, hear that.
0: Well, uh, it's but yeah, it's better to at that point to be over communicating than under. You know that at least you you're getting that feedback that says okay, we don't need that many, but uh, you know that you are meeting the needs of all your clients.
2: Yeah, and they were terrific as well. I have to say, our clients were great through this process. You know, everybody was more understanding of that in March and April when everybody in the U.S. went work from home, but they were having to make decisions about allowing access. When no one in the U.S. was dealing with that, and then of course when it did hit the U.S., what was great is we were able to help our clients with a lot of those things too. And we, we put up all of our checklists, we put all of our learning online, available to our clients. Uh, any of them that had questions for our IT department or how to do that, we said, "Look, we've just gone through this. You know, here's what we've learned," uh, and I think that was helpful as well.
1: Yeah. So now like when you reflect on the pandemic how do you feel COVID-19 impacted your business like going forward Well look
2: we've been blessed as a company to get through this so well there were so many organizations industries restaurant hospitality manufacturing that were hit hard or or had to endure much larger challenges than us so I think I never take a day not to kind of reflect on that um, Mm -hmm. and make sure that just understand how and how traumatic it's been for for so many folks uh, around the world. Mm But I think ultimately it showed how resilient our organization was that we could take a crisis like this. And, you know, one of the interesting things I remember early on when we went work from home in China is. About a week after this, our productivity went above 100%. So, 100% was what before this hit, what we were supposed to be producing or delivering every day to our clients. And it went above 100% one day. And we were like, well, that's interesting. Why is that? And because obviously we were not doing any training, we weren't doing any activities at that point. We just got everyone online and everyone was just doing the work that needed to be done. Mm-hmm. They actually produced more. <laughs> <laughs> than on a normal day, which was good because we had some catch up to do. But right. it, I think it showed, again, how, how resilient and, and how quick we can react, even with such a large global uh, footprint. So it made me feel confident that, that our organization was very strong.
0: I think culture has a lot to do with it. We experience something similar. Our our people just, we've gone to crisis before, and when this came along, we were prepared. It was like we just hit the road running. They all pulled together, did whatever it, they could to to get us to the next level. And, you know, we had a better year than the previous year uh, as a result. Yeah, It's just outstanding to see that. And, and and you do feel good coming out of something like this, a crisis like that, and seeing that your people have overcome it. And in such a powerful way, that says a lot about the people that you have.
2: Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and it really is, I have to say, our team members all over the world in China and India, like I said, when China needed PPE, or India staff were trying to help out. Then later on, when India started to go through challenges with the pandemic, our China team were helping out. You know, each country and each team just trying to do what they can for each other was really special. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you have a unique company and a unique culture that really has done a lot for you. So now that we
0: understand how you handle the global pandemic, let's chat about your normal world, providing services to some of the insurance industry giants. Share with us some case studies of organizations that you've been able
2: to assist. I don't know where you want me to start? We've got now over four hundred clients in the insurance industry, so we do work for brokers, MGAs, wholesalers, and insurance carriers. It's mostly in the commercial PNC, employee benefits and personal lines sector. So we serve as a pretty broad group of organizations, although it's very specific to a particular sector of insurance.
1: Okay. So I love to get right into it, down into the trenches. So give me, of course, eliminating the names a horror story, you know, like an organization that was in bad shape and that you guys came and were able to turn it around, maybe, you know, change the profitability. Give me just a, a case study.
2: Yeah, sure. So, well, I think there's a lot of messy operations in insurance. So it's it's not uncommon to find that kind of chaos in a, in a lot of our uh, client organizations. When we start out, you know, you have uh, in the broker world, you've got producers that are you know pulling in submissions and bringing a new prospect and it you know everybody stop everything and hop on this and that has right. this <laughs> effect downstream of you know then policies don't get checked and then certificates don't get out or customer service lapse so i think that's a pretty common example for several clients i can think of we typically start in the area that causes the most pain. So where they do have backlogs with their their service staff are stretched, they're not getting to checking policies. Mm -hmm. And when policies don't get checked, then later on when you find errors, you have to create endorsements. Mm -hmm. So that creates more work. And then when you renew that policy, you've got to gather all those changes up and reflected in the new policy. So that creates more work. So it's this cascade effect when these things start to fall behind and then the customer experience also gets impacted. So oftentimes we'll come in and we'll solve a policy checking backlog. And once that is has, has freed up, then the clients would say, well, oh, that's great. You guys did a wonderful job with that. We're back on track. They can take a breath and then we'll start looking at the other areas and saying well if you guys could do that can you, okay can you also help us with with certs or how about with renewals or can you help mm-hmm. us with new business submissions and we'll usually start to build up from there pretty incrementally gaining trust along the way uh, proving mm-hmm. out that we can do the work and then you know i think the other i think my favorite uh, example is and we've had this a couple of times where you know you have a um, someone who's resistant account manager or a commercial lines managers resistant to working with us in the beginning. It's not going to work. Uh, you know, the work is too complex. We can't, they're not going to know how to do it my way. And mm-hmm. we start working with them. And after a couple months, they get converted, right? Mm-hmm. They realize that they've got more time in their day. To focus on the client experience, to focus on revenue growth, to focus on whatever it is, it's important to them. Mm -hmm. And when you get somebody like that that was a resistor and then becomes converted, they're your best champion. Yeah, they're raving fans. They're raving fans. So that's one example I can think of.
1: What are, so you said one of the, barriers is when you're you know having those initial conversations with clients that are exploring your solutions one of the barriers is that your folks are not going to know how to do the work and obviously you turn that around and prove them wrong what are some of the other barriers that you face
2: I think a change in itself in the insurance industry you've got a lot of legacy systems and processes and Absolutely. doing things a certain way for a long period of time a lot of very experienced people very knowledgeable people but they've also they feel passionate about their clients and mm-hmm. about the level of service they need to give them and how they want to give mm-hmm. it to them but they have their unique way of doing it so mm-hmm. trying getting organizations to think of operations in a standardized way and to start to look at one, how to standardize the work in the organization as a whole, and then finding the pieces that we do well, and then showing showing their folks how that can start to change their job for the better, where they have more time and they can focus on those projects that they, they want to be working on. And they're not just reacting.
1: Yeah. You know, we're kind of similar, you know, our business, uh, Ilsa, is kind of similar to yours that we are in outsource provider to the insurance industry. And, you know, oftentimes we find the same barriers, you know, like, how are you folks going to know how to do it? Well, we've been doing it for so long. And some of our best clients are actually those that have tried to do it themselves, right? They've tried to do it and they're like, heck no, there is no way that we want to tackle this. One of the recent things that we've come across um, due to the pandemic is that unfortunately, in the case of some folks working from home, this is on a new company that's just coming in is that they realize that the folks that, well, it was one person in particular that was supposed to be doing filings around surplus lines. None of that was done during the pandemic. I mean, months and months and months, and none of those filings were done. So, you know, we're seeing things like that that are coming about because of the pandemic. Of course, the other thing is cost. You know, a lot of times it's, well, um, is it, cost efficient for us to use you but then when they realize all of the different services that we provide and how they are outsourcing that maybe to an accountant to a law firm and then they when they run the numbers they're like heck yeah it's so much more efficient to use your services with folks that are doing this stuff day in day out you know it turns out to be a great uh, relationship well
2: and and exactly related to, to your experience what we found is You know, when we start to work with an organization, and again, every account manager, even though you have an AMS system, you have a a standard document management system, every account manager is putting things in different places or organizing it differently, and so their audits are often chaotic and an insurance company comes in and they want to audit the files and they can't find things and everyone's got to scramble again, even in the electronic age when when most things are digital. And what we've heard from clients very often is after they've worked for a while with us, when our staff do it, right, they're doing it exactly the same way each time. They're putting the different files and the different pieces of it in in the same location with the same naming convention. A year or two later, when they go through that audit, the insurance companies rave about them. And they're like, you know, it's everything is, is clean and easy. And then, of course, mm-hmm. there's less risk, right? There's less e right. risk. There's less challenges with your carrier relationship. So there's all these other impacts that may not just be related to the tasks that you did that day that we think provide real
1: value. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Yes. Let's. Do a little bit of shout outs to you. In August of 2020, Inc. Magazine ranked Resource Pro on the list of America's fastest growing private companies for the 12th consecutive year. So Resource Pro has been recognized as an industry thought leader and the company is renowned for its focus on innovation, service excellence and trusted partnerships and its unique productivity platform for insurance operations. What's your secret?
2: <laughs> I l- she likes she likes to go the in there and get the sauce. secret sauce. Come yes. on, man. It's it's a good question. And you know, I think it's not just it's not just one thing. I think what, what we do really well is the integration of a lot of what you just described there, where it's you know, trusted partner relationships. So that's not something you do in a day with a client. We try to build trust. We start in one area of their business and we try to build trust through quality of our work and our team over time. And so they feel more comfortable with us. And we try to be honest and communicate openly even when there are problems. You couple that with our rigor around process-driven company. And I'm sure you guys know this as well. You guys have to be. We take a very careful and methodical approach to how we write procedures, how we train employees, how we track information, how we audit and we've developed those practices over time and made sure that, you know, every employee and every team is following that. And you couple that with our focus on insurance. We don't do other things. We haven't gone into other industries. So mm-hmm. we're able to get our people, some of which have been I guess I've been there for near 19 years. Most of the management team up from the team leader level, three, 400 people have been there 10 years plus uh, mm. working with different, different agents, you know, different MGAs, different carriers, different uh, parts of the policy lifecycle. We, very early on, we realized everybody calls everything different. In the insurance industry, one client calls a task yes. this one, one client calls a process this. So we mapped out yes. the entire policy lifecycle from very high level, a new business submission, quote, renewal, endorsement, claim, all the way down to we bring it down three levels where we've standardized every task. And so whenever we do work for a client, they have their their name for their task and we're not going to change that. We're going to, they want to call it something, we will call it that uh, when we report to them. But we link that to a standard task name and that way we're able to compare, benchmark, develop best practices on common tasks across a wide range of clients. And then you, you add to that the culture and the values and the innovation mindset. We try to build a culture of innovation. We build innovation programs for our employees to give them rewards for uh, trying something new, for having impact. So I think it's putting all of those things together. I think that that makes us uh, unique.
1: It's definitely working. Congratulations.
2: I want to go back to a little bit of a transition that
0: you had to have going from Long Island to China. Oh. How long did it take you or how fluent have you become in Mandarin? That's a great
2: question. I I probably speak like a three-and-a-half-year-old. And I know <laughs> that. And by the way, a three-and-a-half-year-old can say a lot of things. <laughs>
1: I know. I know they can. And I
2: know that because... I raised my kids in China. Zoe and Olive, who are now uh, nine and 11, were both born in China. They moved here when they were five and seven. And so I remember when Zoe uh, was three and a half, her Chinese surpassed mine.
1: Uh, (laughs) And was she correct, Daddy? Are you sure that
0: you have a really, really bright child? You know, some three-year-olds are prodigies. (laughs) It could be. It could be. I've never caught up. (laughs) <laughs> I've never
2: would called. she correct you? She would correct me. And, and it was actually, it was a really great way to learn Chinese because kids learn language through repetition and through activity. Mm-hmm. And so she would be practicing something and saying what she's doing in Chinese. And I would be like, oh, oh, that's what that word is. And I could just pick it up because she was visualizing it. Uh, so mm. I, I thought it was a great environment for me to, to continue to learn Chinese to To have my uh, kids—that was their first language originally. And wow,
1: do you have them still taking Chinese?
2: They are. They're in a a immersion school that splits between Chinese and English.
0: Oh, wow,
1: that's wonderful.
0: Now, for you, how frightening was it? I mean, again, you left here, you go to China. What were you thinking? What were, you know, what were the scary thoughts going through your head at that time? Because you're going to a completely different culture. I know you had a friend there already, but what were you thinking at that point? How are you feeling?
2: It's a good question. And I had such a great time when I did my semester abroad in Europe and went to France and Italy and the Netherlands. And I always enjoyed the different cultures and language and trying to understand and try different food and, and see what people were doing. Oof. So for me, it was, it was very natural. It was obviously a bit different from Europe. It was, you know, there wasn't as much of a, a common language or, 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 history, but that part was just fascinating to me. Oh my and goodness. the exciting part for me was I remember I remember one day going to the post office in China and I I needed to do something. I needed to mail a letter or something. And I practiced with my Chinese teacher the day before about going to the post office. I went to the post office. I handed them the letter. I said it in Chinese. They understood what I was doing and my letter got sent. And that was like the big deal. (laughs) Yeah.
1: You were like, I spoke Chinese. I mean, I was able to communicate. Yeah. You know, Ted's taken Chinese for Mandarin for a couple of years. And uh, when we went to China in uh, 2019, he was able to communicate with the taxi drivers and whatnot. And it was just amazing.
0: I'm excited about going back. Maybe I've learned enough that I can uh, do more. We really felt comfortable and relaxed over there. And really enjoyed it. And you know, a lot of the things that you said, it made it sound like you're in our family (laughs) because we enjoy eating and traveling all over and we enjoy new cultures. We're constantly, I mean, for us, that's, that, that is so cool seeing how people do things differently.
2: Well, I can't wait till travel is a little bit more free because I, I'd love to take a trip to China with you guys. And I think we'd have a lot of fun. Oh,
1: Oh, Oh, that would be, Oh, that was, that was going to be my next question. Got to do it. Was, uh, we know that you are passionate about traveling. So we wanted to know what's the first trip that you've taken already or that you plan to take when things open up?
2: It's a great question. We are going in a few weeks to do whitewater rafting in Utah, my daughter's. Oh. Mm. Actually, it was something we planned almost two years ago because uh, these trips book up so far in advance. So it was pre COVID, we booked it and just miraculously ended up like two years in the plans. And like this whole thing came right in between and now it's in July and we have no concerns about it. So that's the first trip we're doing.
1: Very nice, very did we nice. Do we, we did again. a little white water rafting, nothing serious. It was at an insurance conference, I think the Western State Surplus Lines Law, yeah, the Surplus Lines Conference that we went out Man, well, I miss those conferences.
2: Well, I'm sure it's, so, it's at an insurance conference. It's got to be a, a, a risk mitigated <laughs> whitewater rafting trip, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know.
1: but it's so much fun. But we
2: did Costa Rica
0: where we did a category five and uh, people were going crazy. Just getting in the water was was crazy. And yeah. I, we did it with, with I had a busted our boys. lip. <laughs> and she came out with a busted, a busted lip. Knee. That was an exciting one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that was quite an adventure.
2: So what's the future of Resource Pro look like right now to you? That's a great question. We've continued to grow through the last year and, you know, 15, 20% a year. Again, a lot of it has been with our our existing clients that have a lot of opportunity to continue to partner with us on things. We, We bring on new clients as well. I think we're with the global footprint that we have now, the capabilities that we have in India, in China and in in Lincoln, Nebraska, where we have account managers and licensed people that can talk on the phone directly with insureds. we're doing more and more what we call integrated solutions where instead of just doing a task or a process, we're taking over larger functions where we can have a direct impact on what the business or our clients are trying to achieve and uh, create that more holistic approach. And then we're doing a lot more with automation and RPA to integrate that into our service offering so that not only do you get great people uh, with great processes that are efficient and optimized, but then you add to that the ability to automate some of that work and increase the productivity even more.
1: It's excellent. Nice. So, Matt, how do people get in touch with you?
2: I don't know how to answer that question. I... <laughs>
1: <laughs> they can get in touch with you on LinkedIn. <laughs> they... <laughs> uh, people, people
2: can get in touch with me on LinkedIn. They can email me. <laughs> they can go to resourcepro.com.
0: Yeah. Okay. Excellent. And we will have that information in our show notes for everyone. So. Okay, great. That
2: was the hardest question, Arlene. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's hilarious. That's good.
0: I like that. Where in India do you have your offices, by the way? I forgot to ask about Our that. Our
2: offices in India are in Bangalore.
0: Okay. Because I have Indian friends that they might get upset at me if I don't ask about that because that's yeah. the next thing. I got to study Hindi.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and <laughs> India's been fascinating as well. We've been there for four or five years. We opened the office and we've always been very differentiated. We think, we believe, we've always been very differentiated from other players in the field. And and most of the people that we come across that are providing BPO services for the insurance industry are from India. Uh, that's a mature BPO industry environment. And when we opened our office there... Initially, we thought, "Oh, this is a great place for talent. We can hire people who already have experience in BPO and insurance." And what we found mm-hmm. was that our environment and the way we work with our clients—I mean, we're really, we're really insurance people who started a BPO company. And mm. in right. India, not always, but generally speaking, there's you know BPO companies that decided to service a particular industry, and we had uh, not very good luck. With many of those folks. And and so we really had to change our hiring, our training plan to unlearn many things before people could learn how Resource Pro does business. And it was challenging at first and we had some turnover and some steps back, but we've gotten to the point now where that culture is really starting to take shape. And they're now really operating like a resource pro organization there and the team is great Mm. and the results have been fantastic the quality uh, of the folks and their work so we're really excited about Bangalore as well wow that's really good to hear well Matt it's been a pleasure having you on this
0: edition fantastic information I would call resource pro a purple cow That's what we call those people that stand out more than anybody else. And that's one of the best ways to do business, have people come to you because you are that different from everybody else. Well,
2: thank you so much. This has been great. I really enjoyed talking to you guys and sharing with you some of my experiences.